Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Well Women Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Pfeiffer, naturopathic doctor. Today, I'm really excited to talk to one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Kaylee Gaughan. She is a a fellow naturopathic doctor practicing in both Aurelia and Toronto. Hi, Kaylee. Hi, Dr. Laura. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to get down to business, if you will. Yeah, I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just start. Um, Today, I'm making puns. We're talking about digestion. And this is something that Dr. Gon focuses um, or sees a lot of in her practice. She sees a lot of different concerns, but digestion seems to be something that you are passionate about. So tell me about the interest and a little bit more about your practice. So absolutely. So digestion is one of my greatest passions as a naturopathic doctor. As We all know it's one of our largest organs that we have, but it's also one of our most important organs. It's used at not only regulating and eliminating food, toxins, and pathogens, but it's also so closely linked to our skin health, our hormone health and regulation, how much inflammatory load is on the body, and it's really closely linked to mental health. And so I like to work on digestive health with all my patients. It's not just... Um, those who are coming in with digestive concerns because digestion is so so closely linked to everything else that it's really important that we make sure it's as optimal as possible. So in my practice, it's definitely a general family practice um, with individuals ranging from newborns to nine years old, but I do see a lot of patients with digestive concerns, lots of mental health, anxiety and depression, chronic pain and fatigue. So if we're talking about digestion, we obviously have to look at the whole at the body as a whole. And so it's not just looking at what bowel movements are looking at, looking like, but it's also looking at hormone regulation and inflammation, pain, chronic fatigue. So I like to incorporate everything. And it's not just as simple as, you know, looking at poop. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the hormones um, and anxiety and skin, because a lot of people don't realize that one symptom is linked to everything. And so especially when it comes to digestion, a lot of also my patients, your patients, everyone doesn't realize I find, and you also find this, that when you're taking a full intake and say someone comes in and they're, they're coming for, okay, their acne and you're doing the intake. And then you ask about how many bowel movements they have a day. And they kind of look at you like you're the weirdest person on the face of the planet because people don't really, they're like, no, no, no. I'm here for my acne. <laughs> You're yeah. asking me about my poo. And so I think that that's an important link to draw. People don't realize that there is such a connection there. And in fact, it is often the root cause of a lot of issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I think that it's, it's so important that just like as naturopaths, like we consideration like most people come in for you know one or a couple things but when they leave a visit they come out with you know instead of three concerns going in they come out with 10 concerns going out because what they thought were normal symptoms or that was their normal was actually their body's way of saying hey something's wrong like these are symptoms and we just didn't know yeah and I think that's the most important point is it's so funny and um with naturopathic medicine a lot of people can probably relate if you see a naturopathic doctor you end up feeling almost at the end of the first appointment that oh my gosh I have so much wrong with me and I I often say to my patients like, okay, no, you don't have a lot of things wrong with you. A lot of things are connected and you've actually never taken an hour or an hour and a half to actually take a deep dive into any of your symptoms. So we're just kind of bringing them all to the surface. Exactly. And so let's just, because we're talking about digestion, like we said, we can kind of go down a rabbit hole of any sort of concern. So um, in for digestion itself, what sort of concerns are you seeing with respect to digestion specifically in your practice? So honestly, like when it comes to digestion, I would say that I see the majority of my patients are not having regular bowel movements. So I would say I see about 90 or 49% of patients are having constipation. The other 49% are having diarrhea and only 2% of my patient population is having regular bowel movements. So if we break that down, 2% of them are 
only having optimal bowel movements. So if we think about how many people I'm seeing in a day or in a week, almost all of them are having some kind of digestive concerns. So specific digestive concerns I see a lot, a lot are um, people experiencing heartburn or gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, irritable bowel syndrome. I see a lot of inflammatory bowel disease as well. So Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and how they can help to reduce the inflammation in their gut. Um, celiac. So a lot of patients just seeking help on, you know, tips and tricks to avoid um, gluten in their diets. But a big one that I see often is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO or candida. So those are bacterial overgrowths in the small intestine. And so Often these are underdiagnosed in the population that I see or in the population that most naturopaths see. And so I think that most people or lots of people, the majority of people who have issues with their bowels are dealing with some kind of bacterial overgrowth. And so we look at, with that, we look at stomach acid and heartburn and we look at the whole body to make sure that it's not that because when it comes to SIBO, it can be challenging to treat and it is challenging for lasting effects. So we want to make sure we rule out everything else. But I would say the number one thing I see is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth when it comes to digestive concerns. And so in my practice, I think an important note as well is that not only am I looking at digestive symptoms related to digestive disorders, but also systemic disorders. So that can be linked to digestive symptoms. So if we think about like different examples would be hypo or hyperthyroidism, each of those have diarrhea or constipation. So sometimes it's a bigger picture that's going on and it's not just an issue within the gut or within the digestive tract itself. And so that's why we have to look at everything and we get that whole history right up from the beginning and make sure we're ruling out all those different things. Yeah. And I think that's important that you mentioned uh, thyroid balance as well, because I think a lot of people, and we're going to talk about normal and what that means, but especially when somebody has maybe had this subclinical underactive thyroid for their entire life or as much as they can remember. And so that becomes their, mm -hmm. and so now having one really hard once a day or maybe every other day is their normal. So they might actually not even come in. Maybe they came in because they have anxiety. And then you're kind yep. of like taking an intake and saying, okay, so tell me about your bowel movements. And a lot of times I make the mistake of just saying, how's your digestion? Just as kind of starting. And a lot of times I get yeah. fine. And so then I have to elaborate 99.9% of the time, but that's often my gut reflex yeah. of what I'm asking first. Um, and instead I've actually yeah. changed that recently to say, okay, let's talk about your digestion. And then I go into questions because a lot of people think that theirs is fine. And when they tell me, oh like I have one bowel movement a day only because I have coffee and then that's it um but if I don't have coffee I won't actually go so I find it interesting and that you mentioned the thyroid perspective is because it just shows you how long-standing these concerns can be and people might not actually know and so I would agree most of my patients I end up doing digestive work on there are a few who have amazing digestive systems and we only work on a few things yeah. but I will also say with those people I find that their um their change with respect to all their other conditions it happens a lot quicker when their digestion is already at par um so talk to me about uh people's uh, people know they're normal uh so what's normal and what should people be looking for so this is probably one of my favorite questions I get from patients. And so when I do have a new patient who hasn't seen me before I come in and I say, you know what, we're going to get really close, really fast. We're going to talk about bowel movements. We're going to talk about things that you haven't talked about before with other people. Maybe you have never even looked yeah. at your own bowel movement. But I think it's so important because what are normals and what is a normal bowel movement? So most people have gone their entire life without knowing what a normal bowel movement is. And I would say like, at least nine out of 10 people think they're having a regular bowel movement, but they aren't having a regular bowel movement. So my general rule is at least one to three bowel movements per day. And we really are looking for 12 inches of stool. So whether that's in one large stool or that's divided up into three throughout the day, it should be light brown to dark brown, nice, smooth and form sausage-like consistency. It should appear soft and it should sink to the bottom. And so when you're actually looking at the toilet bowl, you want to kind of 
look and see what that consistency is. It should be one form piece. It shouldn't be a whole bunch of tiny little or rabbit pellets that make a big sausage. It should be one solid singular piece and it should break up in the toilet that is still normal, or it should stay consistently in one piece. So you should be able to fully evacuate your bowels without the need for straining. And I think that's a really important part is that sometimes people say, okay, yeah, I have one bowel movement per day. It's great. But, and it could be 12 inches, but if they're straining, they're sitting on the toilet for 30 minutes to an hour just to get that bowel movement out. And they're not fully able to evacuate their bowels. That is still a form of constipation. And so with that, there should be no gas, no bloating, no mucus around the stool. So that would be indicative of if you can see a film around your stool, or it'll feel like it's slippery when you wipe when you're wiping. Um, and another point is that there should never be blood in your stool. Um, obviously, you know, people can get hemorrhoids from straining. And so a little bit of blood when wiping, you know, we do know that that is linked to hemorrhoids, but we never want to see blood in our stool. And so that can be a red flag that we want to seek help. But most people don't look at their stool. It's time that everyone starts looking at their toilet <laughs> and making a mental note of their bowel movements. Because even if I have patients come in and they'll be like, you know, they come in for an initial intake and we're sitting down, we're talking about bowel movements. I give them my spiel and I'm so excited to start talking about it. And they're like, well, I've never actually looked at my bowel movements. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And so some people just have never actually taken a look. So it's, you know, sometimes I'll tell my patients, I'm like, if you can't remember and you don't want to look, snap a picture, bring it in, show me. I mean, we want to make sure bowel limbs are a way and consistency is a way of showing us how your bowel movements are, are operating. It's different symptoms that we can use to put the big picture together. And so every little change or changes that we notice is important to make note because it's our body's way of saying, giving us a signal and saying, hey, something's not right. Like you need to be supporting me better. Absolutely. And I think all of that is, is everything that I um, do with my patients as well. But I was going to mention that for those of you who don't know, obviously myself and uh, Dr. Gon are both naturopathic doctors, but we have moms who are in the medical field as well. So we are so used to talking about, I would put quote unquote, gross things around like the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to kind of take a step back because I will start to talk about things like poo and things like mucus and vomit and just things that for me, it just doesn't make me sick. And it takes yeah. my husband to be like, Kate, can you just like stop because it's making me feel yeah. sick? Adam is the same <laughs> way. Adam is the same way. He hates talking about bowel movements. And sometimes when he's having an upset stomach, I'm like, hey, how are you bowel <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he's like, stop asking me that question. I'm like, I'm like, you have to tell me, take a picture, show me. He's like, Kaylee, we're not going there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and okay, so on that note, people who take their phone to the bathroom and they're on Instagram or they're re reading a book. Are you telling them right now that they're yeah. constipated? Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> if you are sitting on the toilet for longer than a couple minutes mm -hmm. to do the whole deed, mm -hmm. to sit down on the toilet or pull your pants down, sit down on the toilet, wipe, wash your hands and walk out. And that should be 30 seconds of washing your yes. hands. That then really, you know, that is a form of constipation, even straining, having to push hard, like you can be in and out in three minutes. But if you're having to sit down and bear down and push, that is still a form of constipation. And so something is awry with your gastrointestinal system. And we have to figure out what's been going on, because that can then lead to inflammation in the body. Absolutely. And some other issues. Absolutely. And I think uh, two other things to note is, number one, if you are young, if you have not had a baby yet and you are finding you are straining, you need to figure that out before you have a baby because <laughs> hemorrhoids after you have a baby are sometimes unavoidable yes. and you can have the best of bowel movements and have painful hemorrhoids because of giving birth. So you need to figure out if you have issues before you have a baby because after things are going to get a whole lot more difficult. Gonna, yes. um, and yeah. the second thing is you mentioned mucus and that's, I always ask my patients, blood, mucus, undigested food in your stool. Um, but mm -hmm. I find that sometimes, uh, sometimes my patients will think that there is maybe mucus in their stool when it can actually be cervical mucus. So for those who, mm. for those who don't know, cervical mucus is that we're looking for that fertile mucus. And that happens usually somewhere halfway through your cycle. And so it's that like raw egg white consistency, it's mucus. And so 
it will feel the same, that like slippery sensation when you're wiping front to back. Um, so I always tell people, if you think, if you're not seeing it in this toilet and you're wiping and you feel that sensation, check after if it's feel, yeah. feel just, I don't know, put your finger in and feel if you can feel that mucus from the vaginal canal. Otherwise it's from your rectum and you need to have that evaluated. So just to make sure that is Absolutely. differentiated. So Tell me a few things that impact digestion, because we're talking about like a disrupted digestion and what can, what would cause this? So there's so many different factors when it comes to what goes into digestion. And so right at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about, you know, how it can impact so many different things. So from hormones, inflammation, um, you know, mental health, skin health, stress. But when we start talking about, you know, actual specific factors, it's actually quite challenging um, because there's so many that go into proper digestion. Everything from the food we ingest to our saliva in our mouth, our saliva helps to break down um, certain things. So amylase versus stomach acid, protein breaks down only in the stomach. So that's super important. Pancreatic digestive enzymes, gallbladder bile. So how we break down fat, um, the small intestine absorption, large intestine reabsorption, your gut microbiome. So the gut bacteria that's in your small intestine that help to break down certain foods and help to break down any type of um, pathogens that we have in our body as well, as well as hormones and inflammation, all these things go so, they go into the factors that make our bowel movements. And so when we're having, you know, when we're talking about all the different factors, it's not as simple as just looking at one, we have to look at them all. And so aside from the food we ingest, which I think is one of the biggest factors that plays into what our bowel movements actually look like and how they're acting is stomach acid. And so sometimes people will mm -hmm. be like, oh, that seems mm -hmm. so like insignificant, but stomach acid is really important. And it's one of the most important ones in my personal opinion, because if protein is only breaking down in the stomach and most foods contain some level of protein, you're not able to break those down. If you cannot break protein down in the stomach, your body cannot absorb foods properly. It cannot absorb nutrients, iron. Um, it can't absorb B12, which is really important and goes hand in hand with stomach acid and intrinsic factor. So if stage one of the digestive tract is already at a disadvantage and not being able to break down these foods properly, it's going to affect nutrient absorption and flow of bowel movements. And it's such a simple fix. It's so simple to start looking at stomach acid and making sure it's adequate. Sometimes it's, it's overlooked and we just drop right into the intestines and looking at those for issues. But if step one is not functioning optimally, then there's no point in working down the line. We have to start at the root cause. So root cause being stomach acid, that's why we start there with my patients, make sure it's adequate. And then we go down the, li the line and rule out some other things. Yeah, I think that's such an amazing point because that was actually my next question. And I wanted to talk about stomach acid and um, give me, so let's start with people who are assuming right now acid means heartburn. So heartburn means that they have too much acid. So talk to me about um, what that actually looks like. And also for people who are on heartburn medication, does this impact mm -hmm. digestion and talk to me about Absolutely. how? So I guess we can kind so of wrap that up in kind of, of one, one topic. Often gastroesophageal reflux disease, big words, <laughs> is characterized by reflux or splashing of stomach contents into <laughs> our esophagus. And that results in burning, bad taste in the mouth. It can result in indigestion, that feeling of not feeling full, not being able to break things down or feeling like you can feel air in your stomach, belching or chest pain. It can actually um, come out a lot in chest pain. And so sometimes it can be misdiagnosed as anxiety or issues with the heart. And so many of us think that it's actually due to high stomach acid. So heartburn and gastroesophageal reflux disease is not always related to high stomach acid, but it, in fact, it can be it may also be due to low stomach acid. And so I think that's so important is that we always think it's high stomach acid, but in fact, it can be actually due to low stomach acid. And so reflux with low stomach acid is 
due to having the inability to close the lower esophageal sphincter. And so what that sphincter is, is it's the stopper in between your esophagus and your stomach. And how we close it in our body, in our innate body, is that we have to have enough stomach acid to trigger that closure. If you do not have enough stomach acid to break down foods and you're not able to then close that sphincter, how are you going to stop that splashing back up into the esophagus, which then results in that burning sensation? So in fact, it can actually be due to low stomach acid and not always high stomach acid. So then you mentioned PPIs or um, people who are on heartburn medication. And I think this is this is such an important thing is that mm. heartburn isn't always related to high stomach acid. And how protein pump inhibitors work is they actually reduce stomach acid. So they can actually perpetuate the issue. I often have patients coming in and they're like, you know, I take a, a protein pump inhibitor, I'm taking Tums, I take milk of magnesium, and I don't don't understand why I'm still getting stomach acid. And I said, you know what? Stomach acid is all, or they're still getting heartburn. And I say, it's not always an issue of high stomach acid. It can actually be due to an issue of low stomach acid. And I think some of my patients are floored. They're like, what are you talking about? I have low stomach acid. I've been, you know, thinking I've been dealing with high stomach acid for 10 years. And so a lot of these medications we're seeing right now, the protein pump inhibitors or heartburn medication, they're actually not that great for us. And so they're not meant to be used long-term either. And patients who have been on them long-term have actually, you know, been seeing long-term side effects with the PPI usage. And so when we look at that, it actually can reduce the breakdown of food because you're not you're reducing stomach acid when you already have low stomach acid and it reduces the ability to absorb vital nutrients those being said some of those nutrients are like b12 calcium magnesium zinc folic acid iron but most importantly it can also disrupt the gut microbiome so your gut bacteria and that can lead to ibs diarrhea indigestion decreased stomach acid we know that and constipation so we're taking something as simple as low stomach acid giving you a medication that's going to further lower that stomach acid and then all of a sudden we're ending up with way more issues than what we started with. And so these medications, there's also some safety warnings with them as well. They can increase risk or risk of fractures, um, SIBO or small bacterial overgrowth, um, C. diff, acute um, interstitial nephritis, pneumonia and dementia. And so those are just to name a few. And when we think about this medication that we're taking, is it actually good for us? Yes, it is good when we have actual high stomach acid. But do you know that you actually have high stomach acid or is it an issue of low stomach acid? And so when it comes to heartburn, it's such such a challenging um, area to just want to, you know, take a tum or, t- or, you know, use your PPI. But it's really important that you look for different options to figure out, is it actually low stomach acid? Have you done a baking soda challenge to see, and it's free and simple, cheap and easy. Have you looked and see to see if you can actually test out to see if you have low or high stomach acid? Yeah. yeah, and I think that's so important. And the testing for anybody wondering, we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to uh, highlight a couple things you said. First thing is that patients are floored when you tell them this information. Yep. And that is so true. They're like, wait, no, it's like, they almost don't believe you that it could be the other way around, because it doesn't make logical sense. You assume that there's one mechanism of action, but people don't realize Mm -hmm. that our body is very intricate. And many systems are always working together. And so it, it, it has to do with a lot more than just increased acid. And I find that a lot of time, and you can tell me if this is what you find as well, but I see a lot of fear in coming off of the proton pump inhibitors because these patients are, they might be on them for 15 years and they say, you know what, I tried, I tried to go off of them and I got heartburn. So it means that I still have high stomach acid and taking this works. And I, I feel like Well, I know that these patients don't understand that there is a rebound effect, unfortunately. So coming off of the medication in itself will cause heartburn. Does that mean that you will have heartburn and you will have heartburn for the rest of your life? No, but I can understand somebody who's used to taking this for 20 years. And yes, people take Mm -hmm. these for 20 years. Absolutely. and you can I see why the, why people are I scared say that, to come like, off you know, of them. Uh, such a great example is my mom. So, so my mom is yeah, a ahead. healthcare practitioner 
And she herself was on a PPI for so long or proton pump inhibitor. And she was like, I don't believe you. There's no way that low stomach acid is causing these symptoms for me. And so we, she did have, when she came off of that PPI, she did have that rebound effect, but we worked really hard on reducing that and kind of boosting that stomach acid in proper ways during meal times and with the proper supplementation, if we needed to use that for her. But she was like, I, it took a little bit of time, but she was like, I can't believe that I was using something for this long when it was really a simple issue of low stomach acid. And so I think that it's even true to say like, you know, a lot of healthcare practitioners don't know this as well. And so my mom was one of the, one of those ones. And she was like, you know, we're all constantly learning and evolving yeah. and the body is so complex yeah. and it's not, you know, we always think that, you know, things are simple, but they're actually not simple. They're more challenging to deal with than what we think. And I think that just goes to say, like, you know, when we're trying to self-medicate with, you know, you're asking Dr. Google, what should I do for heartburn? It's, you know, it's not always the case. You want to seek professional advice as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even if you find something natural on online, wherever there is, there can be number one, obviously there can be side effects and safety information, but on top of that, it's like, is it actually going to fix what's going on? Or is it just going to make you feel better right now? Mm, It's probably just going to make you feel better right now. And and I think the thing is, is if you're a person like you eat tomatoes and you get heartburn and that's the one time you get heartburn, then some people just have food triggers. And so that can be one thing that can be managed by avoiding that food. Or if you have to have that food, just Mm -hmm. taking something that's easy to make that food uh, better to cope with per se. Right. Uh, But, but when you're having it every day, then that's a problem. The Mm -hmm. other thing is, is a lot of people don't realize when you're talking about stomach acid is it changes as you get older and it reduces with stress and it reduces with certain dietary things. And so if you didn't have heartburn and now you do, it's time to kind of look at what's going on and what's changed. Um, In addition to the proton pump inhibitors, are there any other medications that impact digestion? And if so, let's um, kind of talk about A lot of medications affect our digestive tract and our digestive system or system. Um, And so a lot of those can result in immediate changes, but some are more long-term and they can be harder to detect. So some, for instance, like off the top of my head, we have antidepressants, metformin, so um, type 2 diabetes medication. NSAIDs, ibuprofen, proton pump inhibitors, we talked about that, and antihistamines like Benadryl. So those are just some medications. And those are those are some medications that a lot of people are on as well. Kind of, you know, if I was to say, you know, top medications that people are on, I would say those are kind of Mm -hmm. the most ones, they can affect our digestive tract. And so Mm -hmm. to go through all of them, it would probably take hours, but not only do medications result in digestive side effects, but also supplements can as well. And this is why you always need to check with a healthcare practitioner before starting something new. I often see patients coming in who have self-prescribed supplements and they're coming in with digestive concerns, but what they don't realize is those supplements that they self-prescribed are actually causing the issue. So for instance, some of those culprits, magnesium citrate, people can end up with diarrhea with certain types of magnesium, um, vitamin C. So we're everyone's trying to boost their immune system right now. Too much vitamin C also can result in some diarrhea. Iron supplements. So a lot of people who um, are anemic or they have low iron intake, you know, take an iron supplement and it can actually be quite constipating if you're not on the right form. Um, so often I have patients that are coming in and we we have to look at all those supplements and what they've been self-prescribing or what they, they thought was good for them because supplements are great, but are they great for you? And I think that is so important that supplements, we think that they're healthy. We think that all these things that we're doing are, you know, you know, boosting our, our vitality, boosting our energy, boosting our digestive tract, but are they actually good for us in this moment of time? Because it can change as well. So I think it's not just medication, also supplements. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would totally agree. And I also have the magnesium and iron and actually one of my good friends who is not a patient, but just a good friend, um, I guess was self-prescribing magnesium. Um, in a form that was less than optimal. And she only realized the connection when she heard, I don't know, I think I did a Facebook live or Instagram or something 
uh, talking about magnesium yeah, and she yeah. messaged me being like, Hey, uh, I realize that's why I'm probably having diarrhea all the time because I'm taking too much magnesium. And I think that's one of those things that, again, yeah. I always say to people, you don't try to fix your own car. So why are you trying to fix your own health? Like leave, leave the, the areas of focus that the, that people actually focus on that they do their education and that they do their training in and kind of let people focus on different areas, whether that's a car mechanic or someone who's helping with your health, because things you can do can be dangerous. It's not because it's just because you can buy it off the shelf doesn't make it safe. Um, but I also want to add, I'm actually really glad you added those medications because, um, Obviously, when we think yep. of things, if I'm thinking of the first thing that disrupts my digestion, I think about antibiotics. And I think a lot of people probably just think, okay, antibiotics, I'm not on antibiotics, so I'm fine. And I think it's really important to highlight these medications that can have effects. And those antibiotics, yes, they do Absolutely. have an effect, but you're not on them for the rest of your life. A lot of these things you can be on for the rest of your life. So I think looking at antibiotics, but also all of these. And I think when we're looking on the same kind of train as uh, supplements, we're talking about a lot of, um, like you mentioned, immune boosting. A lot of people don't know vitamin C can cause diarrhea. So I'm glad you brought that up. And other things that I also mentioned is something like garlic. If you're taking a garlic supplement, people don't, that can be great in an acute illness for certain people. Um, But also garlic is one of those things that's almost like an antibiotic with its actions. And so if you're taking something like garlic or any other antibacterial, antifungal herb, you're going to be depleting that good bacteria in your body as well. And so if you continue to take that, that bacteria balance will be off as a result of that. I think everything, there's a time and a place. And And I think we're so quick. There's a time and a place. You know, I do this as well. Even for myself, I go to a health food store or I'm walking by in shoppers or something and I see something on, on the counter and I always pick it up. Oh, digestive health or oh, mental health or oh, stress support. But is that actually good for me? Does this supplement, does this recommendation that Mm -hmm. Dr. Google or whoever is giving me, is it actually good for myself and my symptoms? Because like we said, even with heartburn, there's so many different factors. It's two-sided, right? Like you can have digestive issues with constipation or diarrhea, or maybe it's indigestion or heartburn, but do all of those supplements that just say digestive health on it, is it going to support constipation or is it going to support diarrhea? Is it going to support gas bloating? We don't know, right? So again, so important to check with your healthcare providers, is this going to be good for me? Absolutely. And so let's get into testing. Are there any tests that you're recommending for patients for digestive concerns tell me more about it if you don't test then why what circumstances would you test in my clinic um I don't always do testing with every single patient but I do do a little bit of test or I do do a fair amount of testing just in general and so when looking at testing I always want to start with ruling out some of my red flags so if patients are seeing blood in their stool we want to be referring for a colonoscopy or to their GP doing a fecal occult making sure that we're assessing those red flags but in my practice I always use an individualized approach when it comes to testing so some patient is coming in with digestive concerns. 10 patients come in with digestive concerns. They're not walking out with the same testing. They're not walking out with the same um, protocol. It all has to be individualized because we're all different. We always want to assess some of the things that I assess off the top of my head. Assessing for inflammation, Mm -hmm. we might look at different lab values. Um, For that, we might look at ESR, HSCRP, we might do um, vitamin, mineral um, assessments to see, is there a decreased absorption? Are we dealing with some deficiencies that we need to correct? Um, There are many causes for um, when we start looking at um, different testing. And one of my favorite favorite things to look for, and I think we, I already alluded to this, is that stomach acid, one of my favorite tests, and it's doesn't cost any money. It's simple and easy. It's free if you already have baking soda at home is the baking soda challenge. And so that's going to help us to determine if if step one of the digestive tract is functioning optimally. So it can assess for low or high stomach acid. So the way it works, and you anybody can do this at home, it's very, very safe and simple and easy is you take, um, so there are different people that do a quarter teaspoon. I like to do a half a teaspoon of baking soda in a small glass of water first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. And so baking soda is an alkaline or basic 
um, solution when mixed with water and stomach acid is acidic. And so when those, those react, they form carbon dioxide and they force us to belch. And so that, what we do is we drink that first thing in the morning and we time how long it takes us to belch. And so depending on that timing, we can determine whether we have low or high stomach acid. And that can give us some indication as to how we need to treat step one. So if we have adequate stomach acid and we're not experiencing heartburn, fabulous. Then we can move on to some other issues. But if we have low stomach acid, I'm not going to be doing food sensitivity testing yet. I'm not going to be doing SIBO testing. I need to boost up that stomach acid first, and then we'll do that down the line to see if we need those. So it's all about timing, when to test for things, and when to test properly for things. Um, so like I said, I alluded to, I also util utilize some specialized testing. I do um, H. pylori breast tests if we're, we're um, looking for H. pylori. Um, candida antibody testing, IgG, IgA, IgM testing. We do some SIBO breath testing, um, GI mapping, stool analysis. What else? Uh, food sensitivity testing. So I do food sensitivity testing, but I like to make sure we're operating um, or we're using that during proper timing, right? Because if I do that at the beginning of a patient's intake and they have low stomach acid and their gut isn't, is so um, inflamed and they're resulting in so much leaky gut, all their foods are going to pop up. Everything's going to pop up on that. And so then if I look their food sensitivity testing and you know, hundreds yeah, of foods exactly. show up or, you know, 50 foods show up and they can't eat anything after that versus just, you know, do giving it some time, healing the gut and then doing a food sensitivity testing to figure out what actual foods they're sensitive to. I think it's really important to make sure that it's not just, you know, throwing tests out there, but also the timing of tests. And, you know, we could talk forever on, on testing. And I think that would be a great podcast that maybe we can do later. Um, but I think it's really important that, you know, proper, mm -hmm. proper mm -hmm. um, history taking, making sure we're doing things at the right time um, with the right intention is also really important. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. I think that we do need to do another one, just talking about tests to break them down. And I think it's important for people to understand what each test can provide when it comes to information. But I also think I also think it is just as important for them to understand that it is an individualized approach. So I have a lot of people and you probably do too. patients that will come in and say, hi, I want the food sensitivity test. And it's it can be really interesting to come in yeah. and be able to see that information displayed in such a um, pleasing aesthetic sort of way where you see the green foods, the red foods, the yellow foods, and then you just kind of go from there. And it's very interesting, but Absolutely. is it indicated? And you're right. Is it indicated now? Is it indicated later? Or is it ever indicated? That's where you, that's where a professional comes in. And so anybody can go on Google and they can look up food sensitivity tests and they can order it. And I've had people come in. I don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. this, but there's a, a, a hair one. I don't know the research behind it, but there's one that uses hair. And so yeah, I've I, seen I the results test. of this. I don't know the validity of it, but you can find tests. If you're looking hard enough, you can find it. But the question is, yeah. And the question is, do you need it? Do you need it? Is it going to give you valuable information? How will this direct treatment? And so I think it is a big red flag. If you see 10 patients go to see a naturopathic doctor and all 10 patients come out with the same test, that is a red flag. Um, and similar, I think that's, I mean, way, way off track, but I think that's similar to hormones. I mean, I offer, um, an appointment where I, mm -hmm. where I do testing. Do I always do testing? No, but it's part of the visit. If we mm -hmm. end up there, if we do the visit and then I say, no, this isn't the right course of action. We don't do it. Right. And so that's where it really takes seeing a professional to really decide what's indicated for you. And so. We were talking about food. We we're talking about food sensitivities. Tell me about diet. Everybody's always wondering: Should I avoid gluten? I should I avoid would dairy? Have like, to say absolutely is there a, not. a blanket do not thing that everybody should be avoiding? Um, that everybody should be avoiding certain foods, and we often get caught up, like you said, in these mm -hmm. fad diets: gluten-free, dairy-free, all these different things we see on the internet. Or a friend is like, you know, I'm doing gluten-free or dairy-free right now. Um, but not all people need to be avoiding these foods, and individuals who warrant this this elimination mm -hmm. for specific foods, those people would include, you know, lactose intolerance. Absolutely. They should be avoiding dairy. People who have celiac disease, they should not be consuming gluten. 
but also individuals who have uncovered their food sensitivities through either elimination diet or mm-hmm. food sensitivity testing. And so I often recommend, or often these recommendations are made after seeing a healthcare practitioner that, you know, somebody's gone and had celiac testing and now they've been prescribed a gluten-free diet or they've tested positive for lactose intolerance or food sensitivities and they now have to eliminate those foods. But those are always after seeing a healthcare practitioner. They don't just guess and say, oh, you know what? I think it's gluten or I think it's dairy that's causing me these issues because what can happen is that if you're actually eliminating Mm -hmm. these foods for a long period of time when you don't need to, and then you go and reintroduce them, they can cause worse issues because you don't have those antigens to break them down. Your body isn't used to having that gluten or dairy. And so you can actually result in a food sensitivity because you've eliminated them for, you know, a couple years. And so even myself, I would say like, it's really important. I used to, before, you know, I got into naturopathic medicine, I used to think, oh my God, it must be dairy and eggs and bread. And I was trying to be gluten, dairy, egg free. But after, you know, seeking out naturopathic support and doing a food sensitivity testing, I realized it was peanuts and potatoes. So French fries. I know. And I find that chocolate covered peanuts. That seems to be the biggest thing. People are often looking for um, this almost like a flashy sort of diet. Like people want, people want the, oh, I'm on keto or I'm doing this. And, and I feel like when I present some of my dietary changes to my patients, they, I feel like they're not impressed. Like they're kind of like, well, that's not flashy. (laughs) And it's not, it's not flashy. I don't (laughs) try to be flashy. And oftentimes you get with, you give a core, you're looking for giving a core um, set of nutrients and you're looking to adapt that to their lifestyle. I mean, there are circumstances where I say, let's try keto for three months. Let's try intermittent fasting for three months, but let's make it, let's make it right for you. And there isn't very many times, there are a few, but there isn't very many circumstances where I say, yep, just go keto. Like, that's not what we do. If we do it, it's, we're doing it for this long, we're doing this, we're doing these changes, you are certainly not just eating cheese and meat. So those are kind of some of the stipulations. Um, So I would agree, I don't think everybody should avoid certain foods either. I think it's, it's all individual. And I think we can't really stress that enough. But let's talk about some basic dietary things that people should be looking for and aiming for. So I like, like you said, I think it's so important that, you know, we don't stress this blanket care um, for diets or recommendations because it can worsen symptoms. And we often think of supplements and diets without side effects or adverse reactions or drug interactions, but that actually isn't the case. Anytime you wish to implement something new into your routine, it's so important to always check with somebody first. And so, you know, when we, when you mentioned, you know, we do do some simple things to boost up, you know, nutrition and support bowel movements and support proper digestion. And people will look at me and be like, well, that's super simple. And I said, well, are you doing it? And they're like, no. And I said, okay, so you know that you need to do this and you are not doing it. You know that it can support your digestion, but yet you want to jump to ketogenic diet or you want to jump to gluten-free, dairy-free. Let's start with the basics. Why not incorporate proper water intake? Who is drinking Mm -hmm. enough water? Are you, you know, drinking your six to eight cups of glasses of water per day? Probably not. You know, I even find it hard to get enough water in throughout the day because six to eight glasses of water is a lot of water. It's a lot. And so if I have one cup of coffee in there, that brings me back to a negative, right? So if for every cup of coffee, you have to drink one extra cup of water. So if I have a coffee in the day, I'm not aiming for eight, then I'm eating for nine. If I have a coffee and a tea or two coffees in a day, I'm then aiming for 10 glasses of water. Are people doing that? No, these are simple things that we can do. Do we have adequate protein, healthy fat and fiber intake? Fiber is one of the hardest things to incorporate into somebody's diet, but fiber and healthy fats are so important for proper digestion. And I can't stress this enough, but clean Mm -hmm. eating, avoiding processed foods, aiming to have rainbow um, colors on your plate. When I look at some of my patients' plates um, or when we go out for dinner or, you know, I see people posting on Instagram their dinners, 
there's no color on mm-hmm. that plate. They have a piece of beige <laughs> chicken. They have a piece of, you know, white rice or brown rice or, you know, potatoes. And they have cauliflower or they have one green or um, one one um, yeah. green vegetable or they might have corn so they only actually have like white is not <laughs> white is not a color you know so if we think about that they only have one color on their plate how are they getting all the proper nutrients into their body so it's about making food inviting putting color on the plate wanting to jazz it up make it instagrammable Absolutely. if you will um but sometimes people will say like these are so simple but I say are yeah. you doing this and they're like no well they're not that yeah. simple then, then start <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the things my patients are lacking amongst a colorful plate, and I tell people, if making it Instagrammable makes you eat more veggies, then do it. Um, And yeah, a lot of my patients are lacking fiber. Let's talk about how people can increase their fiber. So I find this challenging for even myself. I think um, adequate fiber has been one of the hardest factors implementing both into my life and my patient's lifestyle. Um, And I often recommend using a food tracker or app to build those mental notes for patients and myself to be accountable to the amount of fiber in certain foods. And hopefully that will eventually build that transition to making mental notes and mental calculations to track their fiber. It's very similar to um, people who are first on keto and they have to calculate their carbs. And so they use an app tracker, they use a chart to be like, okay, you know, um, meats and cheeses are zero, but you know, tomatoes are, are a four or five. So you know, mentally calculating the amount of carbs that they have in their head, but it it doesn't just happen overnight. So I find using a little app, a food tracker, my fitness pal is one of the ones that I love. It's really, you know, it does take a little bit of effort, but it's one of the only things that I found that have worked. And then for some of my patients that struggle to get that fiber in is just too much. And so doing something simple, like a fiber supplement, um, that can ensure daily intake. So it's, you know, If we're really struggling, especially I find um, elderly population um, really have a hard time getting fruits and vegetables into their diet. And we work on those and, you know, making tips and tricks of how to incorporate that. But even for women, I find that it's so hard to get fiber into their diet that sometimes, you know, supplementing in the meantime until we build those lifestyle changes, a fiber supplement is the best way to go. So what I do, simple ways to build fiber into my diet, my patient's diet is increase vegetables at every meal. You think you have enough vegetables on your plate? Put Mm -hmm, another mm -hmm. scoop. You know, if you're if you're looking at your plate and this is what you would normally put on it, put another scoop of broccoli, another scoop of salad, another scoop of a vegetable on there. Um, Substitute your scoop of potatoes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like building or adding nuts and seeds into every meal or snack. So, for example, chia seeds, um, any type of nut, um, flax seed, Mm -hmm. sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, those have good sources of, excuse me, a fiber. And it's an easy way to incorporate crunch into your meal to make it more inviting, to make it more Instagrammable, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. will. Um, but the other thing I find is like people leaving peels on their fruits and vegetables. I think this is just like something super, super simple. But, um, you know, when we're, when we're making snacks for our kids or, you know, we don't like cucumber peels or apple peels or, you know, we peel certain foods because we don't like that crunch. Anything where we think that there's crunch, that's fiber. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that we keep the peels on fruits and vegetables and avoid juicing. So mm-hmm. juicing is great to boost your nutrients, but juicing does not have fiber intake. So it can affect your digestive tract. So I'm also, I'm always hesitant to, um, to build juicing into somebody's lifestyle unless they're getting enough fiber from their diet already. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I rather use smoothies because that's a way to still incorporate that fiber into their diet versus doing juicing and completely eliminating that fiber. And that's one less way to get it into their diet. Absolutely. And so I think we need to um, do another episode because we could talk about digestion forever. um, And we probably will. But let's just finish off with telling us number one, talk about the red flags that people should be looking out for um, and when they should be concerned. And secondly, let's talk about some simple things the average person can start doing to balance their digestion or to figure out what the root cause is. Absolutely. 
Okay. So red flags. So off the top of my head, red flags are really important um, to know when to seek medical or urgent attention. Some of these include blood in the stool, severe acute abdominal pain, um, any type of bowel obstruction or constipation for a long period of time, fever, swelling of the abdomen, any change to your stool or change to the color of your stool that is not influenced by a food. So i.e. beets, mm-hmm. um, can change your stool red. But if you're noticing a white, yellow, or orange color, and that's not um, that's not uh, correlating to the foods that you eat, you're going to want to seek medical attention. So then if we talk about simple things that the average person can do to start balancing their digestion, you know, we talked about the foods that we can do to incorporate, but also there's some really simple things that can play into proper digestion. And that is moving your body or exercising. So if you think about sedentary people, they're not supporting that movement of their intestines. We want to move our body to kind of help our intestines push that stool through and help with that peristalsis, getting proper sleep, digestion. A lot of our digestion happens at nighttime. And so, you know, making sure we have eight to seven hours of sleep or that you're having uninterrupted sleep stress management. We talk about IBS a lot um, or irritable bowel syndrome and how much stress can impact digestion resulting in either constipation or diarrhea. So working on stress management and relaxation tips, Um, listening to your body. I think that one of the biggest things you can do to help support your digestive tract is listen to your body and track your symptoms. Look at your stool, Mm -hmm. look for clues Mm -hmm. that your body is trying to give you and simple things as well. Like you can incorporate fermented foods to help with digestion. But again, using fermented foods like kimchi, sauerkraut, kombucha, apple cider vinegar, um, kefir, kefir or miso, those aren't always, you know, supportive for you because what if you have, um, you know, a bacterial overgrowth and those fermented foods are feeding that. So it's always, it's always, you know, a good practice to make sure that we're doing some simple things that is, you know, eat clean, avoid processed foods, exercise, proper sleep, sleep management, and look at that stool and make sure that it is adequate. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Gone, for joining me today. It was really fun. And we totally have to do another one. Yes, definitely. So for anyone listening, tell them how they can find you Instagram, Facebook, website, yeah, absolutely. So my Instagram handle is at Kaylee, K-A-L-E-I-G-H, gone, G-A-W-N. Um, that's my new last name. And <laughs> my website is Kaylee, again, Zinger. So my old last name is <laughs> com. Um, and you can, you know, DM me if you have any questions. Dr. Laura is a great source as well. Um, she's one of my fave naturopaths to listen to, and I love this podcast. Um, so I'm so excited. We're going to have to do another one, maybe talk about labs or more digestion. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I will put that information in the show notes. So if you guys are looking for that, that will be typed up and spelled correctly. Um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. And we will be doing having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, we will be doing another episode so stay tuned uh I just didn't want to you know overwhelm people with the (laughs) (laughs) with hour long you know podcasts absolutely all right everyone enjoy your day uh this was the well women podcast thank you for listening bye